Welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today my guest is Dr. Amanda Wilms. We're going to be talking about understanding pans and pandas. Dr. Wilms and I have been working together for a number of years, and she's such a skilled, kind-hearted, compassionate physician, as well as a brilliant mind. She's one of the team members at Eminence Health who's accepting new patients, so please check out the information in the show notes and a little bit more about Dr. Wilms. Dr. Wilms is a naturopathic physician who graduated from Bastogne. University with a special interest in complex chronic illness. She completed advanced training in intravenous therapy, injection techniques, ozone therapy, mycotoxin illness, autonomic response testing, environmental medicine toxicology, autoimmune conditions, bioidentical hormones, pandas, pans, and Lyme disease. With empathy and passion, she's committed to identifying the root cause of health issues and tailoring individualized treatment protocols. She enjoys helping people of all ages find their path toward wellness and happiness, but has a special focus on pediatrics and women's health. Dr. Wilms has the drive to stay up to date with new treatment modalities and is continually furthering her education in the rapidly evolving field of integrative medicine. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Holmes. Before we dive into this really um, important topic, and I think that we've learned so much over the years that we've both been practicing about how this is an underlying cause of a lot of the neuroinflammatory uh, conditions that we see um, in our children, as well as adult population. And so uh, Dr. Amanda treats a lot of these patients and has so much to share. But before we dive in, Dr. Amanda, for those who might be just getting to know you in my community, I'd love for them to learn just a little bit about how you became inspired to become a naturopathic physician and treat the patients that you see today. Yeah, well, I don't have any wonderful grand story of how I, you know, became a doctor. I it actually took a lot of other ideas and, you know, trying different classes and different career paths before I kind of landed on the naturopathic medicine decision. But I've always just had a really strong interest in the human body, in health, in nature, in plants and I do still think a huge part of it was my mom. She's a nurse. And so, of course, I always, you know, wanted to follow in her footsteps. So kind of moving through different, you know, different ideas growing up as a kid and teenager and young adult, I was like, oh, I want to be a nurse and, you know, know all these wonderful things about the body. But then you start learning and like, no, I want to know what a doctor knows. So then I started looking into going to regular, you know, more conventional medical schools and it just didn't make sense to me. So I... I went to Bastyr and did tours and kind of looked into that career path. And, you know, it just made a lot of sense. And I was super interested in all the different classes that were offered and all the different topics, you know, that we go through. So it was just more of a a very strong interest. And as far as like this actually, like this chronically ill patient population, when I first started practicing, even seeing patients while in school, you know, when you go through school, you think you're you're learning all these really fabulous things and putting people on a couple supplements and like, oh, are they, they're not getting better, you know? So it was actually the patients that don't get better, you know, that really started driving that interest and diving into what else is out there and what other treatment modalities and um, are, are available. So I started doing kind of the 
I call it the boring things, even though they're really not to many people, but lots of well child checks and gyne exams. And it just wasn't for me. I wanted to to dive into the more intense, more complicated, right? More <laughs> yeah, the complicated cases. You know, it's like putting a puzzle together. So and then of course I'm a very empathetic person and just getting connect to connect with people on that level and help them through this path is and this journey overall um, is really important to me as well. Yeah, it's been really fun and it's just a never ending learning curve. So yeah. yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And um, no, I, I know your mom very personally. She was at um, the birth of my daughter, Anne Marie. So I know her to be a wonderful, wonderful. nurse. And so that was just um, by synchronicity. I think that wasn't planned, but that was yeah. all very wonderful. And yeah, I mean, I grew up in a family of medicine too. So it's just how, you know, we're imprinted. And then I think we all come to naturopathic medicine, those of us who are naturopathic physicians from all of these different angles. And I I feel, especially for the patient population, you and I both see, um, you know, I think naturopaths are so well poised, right, to treat the chronic illnesses that we see today um, because of, you know, the way that we look at detoxification, um, but also just um, chronic illnesses are so um, they affect so many systems, right? So they're not going to be just this one size fits all. And I hear you do when you say like, oh, just the primary care stuff, you know, I, I think our toolkit and our framework, you know, just really poises us to see these chronic conditions. And I think that's such a great utilization of our skill set. And I do feel like a detective as well. Like we just, we just see these patients who've been through so much, but um, there's so much reward and joy when we put the pieces together for them and see them um, yes. get their life back. So, I mean, you have, you know, you really see, you know, anyone who walks in your door that is, you know, struggling with a, a chronic illness. However, you do see a lot of children and um, within the kiddos and within that patient population, there's been more awareness, as I mentioned before, and more acknowledgement of what we call pans or pandas. So if this is still a new term for people, what what are we talking about? Like what is pans and or pandas? Yeah. So pans and pandas, I mean, thankfully it actually is becoming more and more well-known and there's actually a lot of like really um, well-known research centers even out there putting more information and awareness out. But PANS and PANDAS, they're the acronyms. The, the PANDAS is Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Strep. Mm-hmm. And then PANS is the Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. So as you kind of alluded to in the beginning, in, in the pediatric population, these are like neuroinflammatory conditions that, that produce neuropsychiatric symptoms. So they're typically like these abrupt onset, um, OCD, anger, rage, anxiety, mood swings, hyperactivity, things that normally, you know, parents will say like, oh, my kid, you know, just went to bed, woke up a completely different child. Like they had this whole different symptom picture that they had never had previously, or, you know, they're at school and came home and, you know, just this huge shift in their overall emotional well-being. It's typically an abrupt onset of these different symptoms, these neuropsychiatric symptoms, but a lot of times it's it's actually missed. So there may be other factors involved. There may be life changes or an injury or some other stressor or reason that could justify like these changes that the, the parents are seeing in their child. So a lot of times that really, that abrupt change is, is actually missed. 
And a lot of times it's accompanied by physical symptoms as well. So along with like this OCD and anxiety, it's very common to have like bedwetting, hicks and GI upset, insomnia, and then just overall developmental regression as well, where kids start acting much younger than their age or, you know, the child will kind of start losing eye contact or their speech or writing may regress. So it's these... It's, it's an abrupt onset typically, but like I said, a lot of the times like people come in and we can't actually go through the history and track like where that, that change actually was. And um, also it can be kind of waxing and waning with these symptoms. So there can be flares where they, you know, have an episode where they have a, a strong worsening where they can't go to school or just can't function or, you know, the ticks are so bad that they can't actually function as they were previously. Mm-hmm. So the symptom pattern is definitely... It, it can be missed, but it's actually, it's, it's a very strong symptom pattern that can use clinically to try and navigate that diagnosis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that is a um, you know, great explanation. And, you know, as you're talking, I continue to think we have these conversations in the office a lot that, you know, part of the presentation of a lot of uh, patients that we see that they have a lot of what we would call like neuropsychiatric symptoms, right? So um, we see um, a lot of these patients specifically. And then of course, with the other patients, we treat like anxiety, depression, OCD, like these flares of rage and anger. And, you know, when people are dealing with more mental health symptomology, you know, there's this whole trajectory that go on, right? Like the psych medications, the psychiatric route, which, you know, again, serves a purpose for some people um, for a period of time. But I think Mm -hmm. this, you know, what this work and what you're going to further explain is I feel like it really just gives us the language to look at these symptoms from the lens of like, there's a, th- these are neuroinflammatory symptoms, right? Neuropsychiatric mm-hmm. symptoms are often yeah. um, triggered by this neuroinflammation. And so, you know, pandas is associated with strep, right? And then pans, mm-hmm. they use that term, right, to kind of cast the net a little bit wider that there could be other triggers. And so what are some other, you know, infections that you've seen be a trigger for pans over the years? You know, what's interesting is I don't feel like, you know, like the pandas, like the strep is such a big focus, but I actually feel like so many other things are are bigger triggers than actually strep is. Mm -hmm. So for pans, for like that, that acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome, it can be so many things. It can be toxins, it can be molds, it can be viruses, parasites. I mean, mycoplasma is a really common one. And also Lyme, Borrelia can be a very common one. So it can be a whole host of things. And then the other complicating factor is even if we have like really you know, figured out, diagnosed, even if it technically is a pandas where strep is the initial trigger of this autoimmune brain inflammation. I've had multiple children where they have an exposure to some sort of fragrance or, you know, they accidentally had their clothes washed in some really, you know, fragrant laundry detergent or something where that triggered this huge regression or triggered some new ticks or something. So it absolutely can be a combination of things, or it can be, like I said, other even heavy metals, environmental toxins, many other different types of infections. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. And as you mentioned, like it can be like this whole, you know, combination, right, of either a pathogen or a toxicant or, or both, right? You know, what kind of, I, you know, not to just skip to this, but I'm sure people are already thinking like, how do we test for this? How do we know we have this? Like they might have a kiddo that's listening at home that might fit this picture. Mm-hmm. So where do we start with testing if you're feeling like this is um, potentially like explains the set of symptoms someone's struggling with? 
I think, I mean, a lot of times it, it's just diagnosed more of a clinical diagnosis, especially, you know, just by the symptom picture and the history, but especially if it's like a PANS type situation, because it can be really hard to find. But I mean, definitely start with the strep because a lot of the time that is the, the low hanging fruit to test for. So you can actually run, you know, the blood titers to look at the different, you know, strep titers like the ASO, anti-DNA antibodies. A lot of the times we'll do strep cultures just to see if there's an actual infection presently going on. And, you know, you can look at the sinus culture, throat culture, also stool as well, because strep infections can be anywhere in the body. It can be in the gut also. Mm-hmm. So definitely, you know, go down the strep road first, but I absolutely will run different viral panels to see if we can get antibodies for, you know, HHV6 or even Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus, um, look at mycoplasma, like I mentioned before. And then, of course, definitely in our world, we're always kind of looking at Lyme as a background infection or opportunistic even. So we'll do like Igenix lab testing for, for Lyme. I also will run, you know, mold markers, uh, mycotoxin urine tests just to see if there's, you know, any clear indicator of any type of other infection or, um, you know, like a heavy metal urine test, that type of thing. Anything else that's really, you know, that comes up positive on blood work or, or any of the lab testing that we can identify as the most probable culprit. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a whole host of things you can you can run through and I know thankfully in our world we we use the ART testing that energetic form of of muscle testing so that we can try and like pinpoint and fine tune a little bit more so we can be more deliberate and more um, focused with which tests we're actually looking at. Mm, perfect. And you know we um, you mentioned already right like sinus and throat cultures and you know, I know through our, our work and kind of the patterns that we've seen, like with the pans and pandas patients, they're typically, it seems like there's a concentrated um, reservoir or focal infection in the tonsils or in the sinuses. And that proximity is why we see the neuroinflammation. And so we just, I probably are assuming that everyone understands that, but maybe if you can just share just maybe what you've seen, you know, like how the sinuses and the tonsils might uh, play a role in this illness. Yeah, well, that's a really good point to bring up. And because yes, any infection that's in the sinuses, I mean, just the proximity to the brain and how closely, like you really only have like one little cribiform plate basically before you're, you know, triggering brain inflammation. So when you have an infection, whether it's yeast or bacteria or some type of MRSA, like staph type infection in the sinuses, it's very easily transmitting like those inflammatory cytokines into the brain and potentially even breaking down like the blood brain barrier, which can lead to a whole host of other inflammatory um so with the with the sinuses, and it, it is a bit trickier because even if you do, you know, systemic antibiotics or some of these other systemic treatments, sometimes you don't get that reservoir. And same with the tonsils as well. I will absolutely have people do a lot of like the sinus sprays and sinus treatments in order to try and really get that that reservoir treated. Plays with the tonsils as well. I mean. I know we talk about the tonsils as the main lymphatic tissue, but there's, you know, five other, you know, the adenoids or so many other immune active tissues, you know, in that area that really need to be treated and evaluated as well for keeping these infections and keeping in the dental piece too, actually. Mm. 
Yeah, the dental can drain right into that walled iron ring, right? Um, of the yes. that whole ring. I know people just think, oh, the tonsils, you know, but there, as you mentioned, there's that whole ring of lymphatic tissue that seems to be mm-hmm. such a common theme and pattern in our office, right? Whether people really have pans and pandas, for sure, that plays a big role. But even our chronically ill patients, you know, this is an area that I think because of the proximity and the immunological mm-hmm. activity, it just seems to be for our patient population, I feel like an area that we often focus on treating. In order to recover yes. their health. Yeah, I completely agree. It's definitely a bottleneck, that area, mm-hmm. that tissue. So we started talking about some treatments and well, let's take a step back because um, you mentioned because of the proximity to the brain that there could be some blood brain barrier disruption or signs of autoantibodies that are affecting the brain. Mm-hmm. What tests do you like to use to look at that? Um, I know there's a few on the market right now, but what, yeah. what are you using most commonly right now? Yeah, I did jump the gun a little bit. So there's there's kind of two two steps basically to what I look at with testing. Like the first one is really trying to identify what the culprit is, like what triggered this autoimmune reaction. And then the second piece is to really try and diagnose that there is auto autoimmune activity. There are antibodies, you know, to the brain, proving, you know, and showing that there is a pandas or pans type reaction. So like I mentioned before, there's a whole host of different tests and cultures that you can do to try and identify what the initial triggering event was. But then to actually look for that um, autoimmune reaction, you're we typically either use the Cunningham panel by Molecular Labs, or we've been using more more recently even the Neural Zoomer Plus, and both are wonderful. I I do like the history. I think the the Cunningham panel has been around a lot longer. That's the one that tests for the five different antibodies basically against the brain to show that there is a pans or pandas autoimmune reactivity happening. The Neural Zoomer Plus is is wonderful, and it has a lot of really good information, and it also looks at other potential infections that could be triggering these antibodies. So either one, kind of depending on the person's symptom picture and you know whatever else is, is um, potentially going on, we'll sometimes do the Neural Zoomer Plus as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. And so, you know, you mentioned a few treatments, right? So we talked about some sinus stuff and some, um, you know, mm-hmm. throat just kind of starting to go into treatment ideas, but obviously yeah. we want to see, you know, everyone's going to be different and everyone we're going to individualize and prioritize. But when you have a pans or pandas kiddo in the office, like what are some of the treatment strategies that you're really integrating and how does that translate in your clinical experience to seeing them, you know, recovering it better? Yeah. So there's kind of, again, like three big things I look at. The first one is actually trying to treat the infection, stop the exposure. That's going to be the biggest piece to start with. So it's always, I mean, well, I shouldn't say always, that's typically where I start with. A lot of the times you do have to work on, you know, detoxification pathways, gut health, you know, just reducing inflammation just to get these kids more stable so they can tolerate some of these different killing type treatments. But that, of course, is a a primary thing is treating the infection or stopping whatever that exposure may be that would trigger that autoimmune, autoimmune reaction. And then, like I mentioned, calming inflammation down would be the second thing. And then really regulating the immune response. Um, so it's kind of a threefold thing that needs to happen conventionally. I know they kind of have very limited (laughs) resources. It's antibiotics, steroids, anti-inflammatories. That's kind of all that they have. But in our world, you know, it's almost 
it's a blessing to have so many different treatment options, but it's also a little bit like overwhelming because there's so many things that actually need to be looked at and repaired. Mm -hmm. So I think the gut is always where I like to start because if, you know, that child is eating a lot of inflammatory triggers or, you know, eating and consuming different additives and MSG and things that are triggering inflammation in the gut, that's just going to worsen this condition. There's just such a huge connection between the gut and the brain. So I typically start with just really supporting the system, removing whatever may be triggering added inflammation, work mm-hmm. on healing the gut. And I like to start with the natural things, of course, first. Um, so antimicrobial herbs like berberines, biocidin, propolis, um, some of the different silver hydrosols, um, those types of things work beautifully for just getting that infectious piece more under control. And then, um, of course, again, more natural things to calm the inflammation down. And a lot of the the anti-inflammatory type things also have a, or can have a neuroprotective effect as well, because that's really the main challenge is protecting the brain during this time and trying to reduce inflammation. So I use a lot of things like curcumin, high-dose vitamin D, high-dose like fish oils, quercetin, phospholipids, glutathione, PEA, which I can never say. It's the palmitoethanolamide. <laughs> um, we call it. Probably, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. No one can actually say it. And, and then, you know, it really depends on the, on the child, but sometimes you do need to pull in more, you know, stronger hitting things like ibuprofen. And, you know, like I said, the overall goal is to really protect the brain, get inflammation down. So there has been times when I've used steroids, you know, if if it's needed and indicated. So I wish it was just a couple simple things, but it usually is this whole host of, um, you know, systems that we're supporting, detoxification pathways we're supporting, and it's usually layer upon layer that we're uncovering, really. Because like I said, it's usually not one thing. It's usually a whole host of things. Um, our bodies are so amazingly resilient that, you know, if you just had a strep infection, you probably shouldn't have this condition. You probably shouldn't have this um, autoimmune post-infectious syndrome. So, and it's also looking at the higher level of work as well, like, you know, working on um, whatever past traumas or self-limiting beliefs, like other potential mental, emotional aspects that may be playing into it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. And, you know, that's the, the whole realm that, you know, we're always exploring and, you know, trying to see how that can support our patients' um, recovery and healing, right? And I know that we mm-hmm. all come to this from different angles, but ultimately seeing, you know, our bodies are barometers of our, you know, these other levels of our being, right? And not to say the physical isn't so, of course, critical and important, but, you know, I think you and I both have seen when families and kiddos and just any patient mm-hmm. is open to just exploring these, you know, other realms that that's when a lot of healing can, you know, accelerate and happen and mm-hmm. be being covered. So it's all other toolkit that we have that, you know, of course we meet patients where they're at and exploring that. Mm-hmm. Anything else to add around that piece or even, um, you know, even when we think about mental, emotional kind of layers and the higher levels, there's also that bridge to, to supporting the autonomic nervous system, right? And there's different tools and therapies. I know even today we were in our group discussion with the other doctors and you were saying how um, one of the patients was using um, SSP work or, you know, there's Gupta work or, you know, so with the more um, geared to kiddos, have you seen 
any like modalities to bring in for this autonomic regulation? Absolutely. I do really like the SSP, as you mentioned, it's the safe and sound protocol. It's like a listening therapy because a lot of the other like higher level work, it's really hard to get kids to do, but I will say I have parents do it a lot of the times because kids are so closely connected with all of the the baggage (laughs) that the parents have as well. So, you know, even working on like the higher levels with parents, it it trickles down and helps with treating those those children as well. Mm -hmm. So I do like a lot of the different listening therapies for kids. And, you know, if they'll do it, I do have, you know, work on like vagal tone type, other, other type vagus nerve treatments, whether it's singing and gargling. It's it's, like I said, it's just a little bit more challenging to get them to do that. But then even just very simple things for kids, like listening to music or like tuning fork therapies or sound therapy, like those types of things can be really, really wonderful for children. And a lot of the times it's, it's just fun. It's not necessarily, you know, a chore for them to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. And, um, you know, just again, maybe a little bit of a different direction, but I feel like we can't not talk about <laughs> pans and pandas was sometimes thinking about the role of tonsillectomies. And we're both, you know, naturopathic yeah. doctors. So I know that we don't yeah. just rush to that. How have you seen that clinically? Do, um, do tonsillectomies have a role um, in helping recover these patients? Absolutely. So I know I I started with talking about all the natural, you know, lower intervention things, but you really have to meet the child where they're at. So if they are completely debilitated and dysfunction, you know, not functioning and the whole family is miserable because of their behavior and OCD anxiety, like you do need to, you know, consider the higher, you know, higher, harder hitting treatments. So Absolutely. I've seen tonsillectomies be extremely helpful for children. And there's actually some research um, showing that it can actually stabilize because if these things aren't treated, it can potentially just keep getting worse and worse and worse, especially after puberty. Mm -hmm. So with the tonsillectomy, you're taking a big chunk, like you mentioned, like the reservoir out. (laughs) So the strep or viral activity, whatever is in those tonsils, you know, the body is actually more efficiently treating. You're not having that basically dead tissue as a, just Mm -hmm. a reservoir. So I've Mm -hmm. seen tonsillectomies be very helpful, both with improving symptoms, definitely seen it more stabilizing as well, where people haven't um, progressed to worsening. And I will say it's, it's been helpful for adults. Even I know, you know, both of these acronyms are for pediatrics, but as you mentioned in the beginning, this is absolutely seen in adults. It's just not quite as clear cut. And sometimes the symptoms, I think adults have sometimes some better tools for controlling their behavior and controlling their situations a bit better. So sometimes it goes, you know, it's missed, but it absolutely can be present in adults as well. And I have seen adults do really well with with tonsillectomies for treating pans and pandas. Mm. And then along the lines of those like bigger treatments, I have seen IVIG be be really helpful as well. So that's again, kind of a, a more conventional treatment, but sometimes it's really needed just as a complete reboot for the immune system. I have recommended that. I know we don't do that in our office, but it's definitely been a big piece for quite a few patients that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's all, I think, you know, where we sit in our patient's team and patient's care, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, really, as you said, you know, there's this therapeutic order we talk about naturopathic medicine, and then just really meeting the patient, you know, with the right treatment at the right time with the right support. And, you know, just really 
again, we're going to be more inclined to um, certain therapies, but, you know, we're going to really just do whatever the patient needs to recover exactly. better and not be, you know, too attached to what that looks like, right? Because our goal is to mm-hmm. get better, you know? So, yes. so, yeah, no, I've been humbled by, you know, how tonsillectomies in certain, really this kind of pattern that we see have, have been extremely um, beneficial for patients mm-hmm. until we get the the regenerative, you know, tonsil <laughs> treatment that we all, you know, that we all. I, wanna, I wish there was something. I know, I know. So I'm totally open to that, and I hope we find that, you know, during our work together, just do what works, right? So, Amanda, you know, with obviously treating children, you know, we have to mm-hmm. support, you know, the family and of course the parents because the parents play such a big role in implementing the care and supporting the child recover. Are there any, you know, kind of clinical pearls or strategies or tips of anyone is listening out there and they're, you know, dealing with um, their child being sick in this way? Um, What have you suggested to parents and how to navigate this illness? I think it's huge to not go about this alone because some, I feel like especially moms think they can do everything and they just want to, you know, recover their child. So they're going to all these seminars and learning, which is fabulous, but you need a team. You really do need a whole team. So you, I would absolutely recommend just building a team of professionals, not only to treat the underlying causes, but for symptom management. So I would absolutely have a neurologist on board, um, to really, and ideally, you know, a PANS and PANDA literate neurologist, but someone, a a neurologist specialist on board, an immunologist potentially as well, because a lot of these kids also have immune deficiencies. That's another thing I will test for is just to look overall if there are, you know, either some type of genetic or acquired type immune deficiencies that are are at play as well. Mm -hmm. So I have people see um, immunologists, neurologists, and I really do think it's important to have like a child psychologist or psychiatrist on board because for very extreme cases, like you need some rescue medications, you know, potentially like some Xanax or some sleeping medication, you know, something just when things get too bad, you you have a, a fallback. And I really do think, you know, talk therapy is huge, even for children, like cognitive behavioral therapy is very helpful. So just going through and having those types of supports, and there's really great support groups as well. Pandas Network, if you just like look at pandasnetwork.org, they have some really wonderful resources and family support groups that you can join just so that you can not feel alone, you know, share stories, find, you know, certain little tricks and trades that work well for other people. And unfortunately, just like in our world of, you know, chronic illness, like what works for one is not always going to work for others. It's just such an individualized treatment, but in an individualized situation. But I do think it's really important to have a good support network. And there's some books I, I really like. It, again, it depends on where the child is at, but I do recommend a lot of Don Hubner books. They're CBT for children. So it's it's going through and teaching kids. She has, I think, 10 different books out, but like what to do if your brain gets stuck or what to do if your temper flares. So the child actually has these different tools moving forward. So things like that can be really helpful. And then also a lot of these kids get, you know, end up getting diagnosed on the autistic spectrum. So you know, if, again, if it's that severe of a case, things like behavioral therapy, occupational therapy can also be hugely helpful. Mm-hmm. So just a full team, good support. And then 
I also try and teach my my parents also about how to avoid triggers because like I mentioned before, even just something fairly, you know, what you'd think would be benign, washing your child's clothes and tied or something can have a huge setback or trigger new symptomology. So I try and really, you know, educate people on, you know, mold exposures, toxins. I give them resources like the EWG.org so they can try and use healthy, like clean products. And then also during flares or if people, um, you know, if, if these children are around people that may have strep or something, I like my parents to have a plan in place, which, you know, may be just antibiotics mm-hmm. initially just to avoid that huge inflammatory autoimmune condition. You know, there's a lot to learn for parents and a lot, you know, it's 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 too much to go through alone. So just having a good, like overall primary person to support the pans and pandas and then specialists kind of in each department, the more, the more brains and eyes on it, the better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great advice. I think that moms and of course dads as well, but the, you know, that energy that, you know, comes out for Mm -hmm. your kid, um, if your kid's suffering, I mean, it's one of the most heartbreaking and most rewarding patient population, right? Our, our kid is, yeah, it really is. Yeah, you know, open our heart, you know, so much. And yeah, to just support them in all the ways that you've shared, you know, is some of the most rewarding work, right? For um, the kids to get really? their lives back, especially when they might be faced with diagnoses that don't give them as much hope in different worlds like the conventional world. We've all seen the parents, um, the moms and the dads just, of course, pour their heart into this um, work so that they can recover their child. But, you know, we have to, you know, preserve the family's energy and time and support them exactly. so that they can yeah. you know, get through this process and not feel alone. So I, I think that's really mm-hmm. awesome. And I didn't know about those books. That's awesome. That They're really great. Um, yeah, just empowering the kiddos as well. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And there's another documentary too, that I think is helpful just to get a more like well-rounded picture. It's the actually Amy Joy Smith, um, the nurse practitioner who specializes in pandas. Mm -hmm. She was a part of this, but it was, it's the, my child isn't crazy documentary. And Mm -hmm. I I do think it's a really good one too. I sometimes will recommend that patient, you know, that that the families just watch that again, to not feel so alone, feel more empowered because it's it's just a complicated topic as far as like insurance coverage and, um, you know, the conventional medical community involvement. So that's a good one too. Yeah, no, good, good pointers. So, well, I mean, have we, I feel like we've covered it all. Is there anything else on your mind or your heart around supporting patients with pans or pandas that you want to share? Not necessarily. It's just, I I feel like I didn't even talk about half of the treatments just because it's such a wide variety of things, but there's really, you know, there's so much that we do in our world that, you know, I didn't even mention some of the really great, like immune regulating type things that can be hugely helpful. Like low dose immunotherapy I use with pretty much every pans and pandas child, because that's um, the treatment where you're, you're basically doing a very, very dilute, like homeopathic version of, you know, whatever may be the triggering factor, whether it's strep or parasites or molds and doing very low dose, you know, once every seven weeks or something to help with that immune dysregulation. So like Mm. those types of treatments can be really wonderful. Even like low dose naltrexone can be really wonderful. There's just, there's just so many things that, you know, that we can pull from our, our toolbox for these kids. Yeah. Do you see with the immune regulatory model, do you see like mast cell treatment as well? Do you feel like these histamine support and that kind of thing? Yes. 
I'm glad. Yes, I, I'm glad you brought that up because basically <laughs> every pan. Yeah. Yeah. Every pans and pandas kid I have, they're on some type of mast cell stabilization, whether it is actual antihistamines or, you know, like more of the supplement version, like quercetin and vitamin C and, you know, nettles, things like that. But they're pretty much all on, you know, some good mast cell stabilizers as well. That's always a big, a big piece of it because it's never just one inflammatory trigger. Like with pans and pandas, it's, it's typically the IL-17 pathway that inflammatory cytokine, but, you know, I I just feel like they, it's this downward spiral. You trigger one inflammatory reaction and it's the whole host of things. So, so absolutely those can all be very helpful. Awesome. Well, um, you've enlightened many of the listeners today and shared a lot of great insight. And, you know, I know that you are speaking up from all of this um, information you're sharing. You don't just read about it. You're, you see this day in and day out. You're, you know, you're treating so many yeah. patients and getting a lot of people better. And so I appreciate from the experience that you speak from, you know, we're so excited that, you know, you're part of the team at Eminence and that you're, you know, seeing these patients. And I um, know we'll have all the information. Um, I know that you, of course, specialize in this and in children, but of course you see anyone really with a chronic illness or who wants to prevent one as well. And we often see too, once we mm-hmm. start treating the kids, we treat the families, you know, just to help yeah. them to be strong through the treatment, but also mm-hmm. some of the maybe preliminary things that could have set the child up just epigenetically um, mm-hmm. in, in the parent. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's an opportunity yeah. to support their health as well. Yeah, that's a big factor too. I love seeing families because then, you know, you can treat everyone, you can test everyone, see if someone's a carrier for strep or, you know, do a little couple of times a year, do a little parasite cleanse for everyone. Like, yeah, I, I actually prefer to see whole families just to, you know, to get everybody on board and you generally get people better faster that way. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And Dr. Amanda is licensed in Washington state and she's um, getting her California license and in process. Yeah. But yeah. now that people are traveling more, you know, if you live in a state um, outside of those, you can come and visit us in person and get wonderful care with Dr. Amanda. And then she can take care of you in between appointments over the phone um, or through telemedicine. So we'll have all of that information, but any final um, words that you want to share, uh, Dr. Amanda, this was awesome. You, you shared a lot of great info. Thank you. I don't think so. I feel like this is such a big topic. You could just talk for, for days about it, but I appreciate you having me on your podcast and I love working with you at Eminence and I'm just very thankful for all of it. Oh, well, thank you. And again, we'll have all the information about Dr. Amanda in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Wilms. Please learn more about her in the show notes. And if you want to become a patient of Dr. Wilms, please check out our website, eminencehealth.com, where you can book a discovery call with our team to make sure that she is the right doctor for you. Again, if you've been enjoying these podcasts, I would be so grateful if you could leave a review on Apple iTunes. Thank you so much and have a beautiful day.